Hello and welcome to episode eight of Between Two Docs, where we're just two doctors taking on COVID, absent politics, and hysteria. We're actually going to have a special guest today, uh, Dr. Robert Solomon, a local dentist from uh, the Hatboro area. And as we've done in other uh, episodes, we're going to address a couple of news topics, which we'll start with, and then we'll get to your questions at the end. Um, and then let's, uh, let's jump right into the news. Uh, Dr. Cohen is going to talk a little bit about uh, what's been going on with the Sweden experiment. Yeah, the, the news topic that struck me the most this week was the, the Sweden experiment, as it's now being called. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Sweden was sort of the, the, the model country here that said, you know what, we're not going to shut down. We're going to keep everything open. We're going to keep restaurants open, gyms open. We're going to keep stores open. Schools were kept open. Dentist offices were kept open. Whereas the other parts of Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, Finland, opted for more strict quarantines, banning large groups and shutting down their, their restaurants and bars, et cetera. So we're now three months into this experiment. We have this control group of Sweden. How did it turn out? You know, the predictions are the economy is going to be bustling. We kept the economy open and disease might be a little bit higher, but we're going to take that sacrifice to keep the economy open. So here we are in July and we have a little bit of a look back. So Sweden has had about 5,400 deaths. Doesn't sound very high compared to the 130,000 we've had here, but the populations are very different. Sweden has 10 million people, about the size of Michigan, whereas we have 350 million people here. So they have suffered 40% more deaths than the United States, 12 times more than Norway, seven times more than Finland, and six times more than Denmark. So they are definitely an outlier in Scandinavia. So 40% more deaths, you could say, okay, but look, our economy's open, things are going okay, we kept small business alive. Unfortunately, the numbers there don't really support that as well. Uh, the central bank, they initially thought in Sweden they'd actually have a 1.3% gain uh, this year. They're actually down 4.5%. Unemployment's up to 9%. And the economic damage is real uh, between unemployment and um, you know contraction of the economy. There's gonna be a long road ahead. So. You know, we could spin this in many different ways. I think the overall message here is that it's very tough to decide what to do here on either a federal, national, or state level. There's too much and there's too little. So Sweden said we're going to stay wide open. Some countries say we're going to close everything. There's a sweet spot. I'm just not sure what that sweet spot is. And I'm not sure anybody does because you're going to either sacrifice lives or the economy. But Sweden, unfortunately, looks to have lost out on both. Uh, that is my summary of Sweden. Thank you for being in the control, but keep pumping out those delicious meatballs. Uh, the other interesting thing in the news this week, which uh, Dr. Valentino is going to talk about, is the WHO, the World Health Organization's discussion about aerosolization of coronavirus. Yeah, so this has been uh, an ongoing discussion, and, and really not just for, uh, for COVID, but if you look back at uh, other um, viral respiratory illnesses, flu being one of them. There's always been a discussion about aerosolization versus droplets. So first, um, what you're reading in the news as of today, and it is, uh, I think by all accounts, it is July 12th, uh, 10th as we are uh, recording this. Um, 9th, so, July 9th, stop oh, jumping ahead. I'll have to edit that out. <laughs> by all accounts, it is uh, July 9th, uh, as we are recording this, and perhaps July 10th when it comes out. So uh, as of today, though, the WHO has not come out with an official statement 
um, about this. However, you've seen in, in probably the press and the news and headlines where they're uh, almost uh, putting it out as if it's a done deal and the science and the bulk of it says, yeah, it can aerosolize. So let's talk about this. First of all, um, definitions. Definitions are always important to know what we're talking about. A droplet is considered uh, a, um, a respiratory droplet is between five and 10 uh, microns. So we're talking very, very small, but in, in a relative world, five to 10 microns, keep that in mind. Um, and the respiratory droplet will have um, some fluid in the sphere and then also have viral particles. And that's to be differentiated from particles that are less than five microns, which are called droplet nuclei, which are primarily um, viral particles with much less of a fluid component. And when we say fluid, what we're talking about is the stuff that, you know, when you spit out or sneeze or respiratory secretions coming out and um, being part, put into these smaller fluid particles. A droplet is something that can be um, locally or directly infectious within about a 3.3 foot uh, range. Uh, the, the WHO uses one meter, one meter is about 3.3 feet, so we'll use feet. Um, contrasting with aerosolization, aerosolization refers to um, the droplet uh, nuclei, so we're talking again less than five micron particles, it's an indirect way of acquiring an illness because you don't have to be standing right next to the, the individual. Aerosolization means that these droplet nuclei can stay in the air and circulate around much more uh, than just a 3.3-foot uh, radius. And also, they hang in the air a lot longer. Uh, they're smaller, lighter particles. So that's what we're talking about when we, when we contrast aerosolization to droplet. Now, can COVID aerosolize? The short answer to that is yes. When we're in the hospital setting and we're doing something like an intubation or where we're putting an airway in someone's um, uh, uh, trachea and trying to get an artificial breathing machine to work for them, or we're doing a bronchoscopy where we put a lighted camera down into the lungs, or we do procedures uh, that might include nebulizers, or we're doing things like a CPAP or BiPAP um, where there is potential for aerosolization around the mask, there's pressurized air pushing out. In the case of nebulizers, there's a fine mist that's going in and out repeatedly, and that can travel a bit. Those type of things we know, um, and we take precautions for in the hospital, wearing things like the N95 uh, goggles, et cetera. Um, to the average person going shopping, um, going out to the Home Depot, um, you wouldn't expect aerosolization to be the route of contamination. And again, this is why it's so important that everybody considers when you're out and about like that, wearing a mask. Uh, masks will not protect you from aerosolized particles, um, but they will protect you from the droplets and perhaps lessening the amount of particles you might release into the environment, okay? So unless you're running around with uh, a portable nebulizer or, you know, you're wearing a CPAP machine in public, which is unusual, highly, um, or, you know, you decided to go outside with your home ventilator, which doesn't always happen, um, you're probably not going to need to worry so much about aerosol, uh, aerosolization and contracting COVID. I think the mainstay that you have to focus on is really the droplet spread. That's how most people are going to come in contact with it in the general population and the general environment. And those are the, the things to consider um, as you hear more of this come out. Um, so we really don't want panic to settle in about it. Uh, I think, you know, a little bit of uh, education is best.
We're now going to go into our second segment where we're bringing a guest onto our show like we've done prior. We are very happy tonight to have Robert Solomon, DMD, dentist at Hatborough Dental Center in beautiful Hatborough, Pennsylvania. He did his undergraduate training at Hofstra, then went to Temple Dental, and now he's over 25 years in the business. Uh, most of them at Hatboro Dental Center, although you can't tell by his boyish charm and good looks. He is a proud husband, has two great kids, one great kid and one so-so kid, and <laughs> he's here tonight with us. So uh, thanks for being here tonight, uh, Bob, and we have a few questions for you, and I'm going to sure. sort of launch into the first one. Um, and we talked about this, you know, I'm also in Hatboro, and you were my sounding post for a while early in the pandemic because we were both facing similar crises. Uh, where did you get your guidance from early in the pandemic as far as opening PPE, who you should see, if you should close, et cetera? Well, the, the ADA was, you know, sort of the ones where it was filtering all the content from the CDC because the CDC kept updating and changing guidance. And it was sort of, you know, it was just very difficult to discern what exactly they wanted us to do. So the ADA sort of made sense out of it, but uh, you know, in the end, it was the Department of Health from Pennsylvania who made the final call as to when we were shut down or when we were open. So uh, we, I looked online, I looked at countries like South Korea, and, uh, Sweden never closed dental offices, just to see what they were doing. And uh, it, it's hard to find out what's real when you start looking around the web, so. You know, it, it was better to just trust the ADA and wait for them to put out guidance and sort of stick with that. Yeah. So, uh, Robert, when you uh, were able to kind of uh, reopen, reestablish, um, tell us some of the things you did to create a safe experience for your patients. Well, I mean, from the get-go, even early in March, we were doing the temperature screenings. Not that that's a 100% infallible way to determine if someone has COVID, but at least it gave us something. Uh, you know, we, we've added all sorts of things as far as spacing out appointments, making sure that the waiting room is essentially empty of all objects because you don't want anyone touching anything. Mm -hmm. um, we added uh, air filters in all the rooms. So there's like an individual air filter system that has a UVC light and that's constantly, you know, circulating the air through it. Uh, my office isn't set up where it's like one open operatory. So that's a big problem for some of the uh, larger corporate offices where they can't make each room individualized. I, I never went so far as to try to plastic wrap a room and make a negative pressure sweep. Uh, you know, those have to really be engineered from the ground up. So to start, you know, just having a company come in and try and throw things that way, it seemed a mistake. Uh, the other thing we do is everyone gets a peroxide rinse. The, the hope is that the peroxide would break down the lipid shell on a COVID and uh, you know, give us some protection for the staff. We're, we're covered in uh, PPE now. I have a shield on all day. Uh, you know, everyone's got the uh, KN95 uh, masks. It's hard still to get N95 masks, sir still really just for hospitals. Uh, I, I'm not seeing those come down in price. And uh, now, I mean, we've done a good job I and mean, we're, we're awfully busy. Um, you know, our office is cold like a theater. So, you know, people come in, you know, it's, it's hot out, but uh, 
we keep it cold so you know everyone's glasses don't fog and these shields don't fog it, it's been a challenge you know but uh piece by piece we were able to add you know elements to as it was happening because we were able to stay open for emergencies so uh that, that helped a lot to open from cold would have been really hard so you know adding these things incrementally was definitely a benefit and the, the emergency piece is interesting in that you know the, the the initial guidance was yes emergency visits are safe as long as you create a safe environment the question i get asked all day from family and friends and patients when do I go back to my dentist office for my routine dental care? When do I go back for my twice a year hygiene checks? Uh, when do I go back just to see the hygienist? When, when is it safe to go back? Obviously, if I have a rotting abscess, I'm in agony, I'm going to rush to the dentist office. What do I do about my routine dental care? Well, I mean, everyone's been open since around mid-May. Uh, it, it's difficult because, uh, you know, the hygienists are – you know, people, and uh, if they have underlying medical conditions, you don't want to bring them right back into the fray. We're, we're not using cabotrons in the office. Cabotrons create a lot of aerosol. And uh, so that, that's been challenging for the hygienists because it's a lot more work without the, uh, the added benefit of that tool. Um, no, but I, I, I do believe it's safe. Like, I, there aren't any indications... Uh, have it here somewhere. The, the CDC says there's not a single cluster of uh, outbreak tied to a dental setting, still anywhere. So uh, that, that gives me some confidence that uh, the way we're working is is effective. But uh, now you, you should definitely, if you want to start seeing your regular uh, hygienist and your regular dentist, uh, I can tell you from our experience, we're backed up until October. So uh, when patients call, they want to get in next week. And uh, we, we had a, a pretty much a three-month hiatus. And getting people in is a challenge. The appointments are longer so that we're spacing out the, the distance of people inside the office. And, and I think everybody's sort of stuck with that. So uh, it, if you want to get back, you're, you're not going to get back tomorrow. <laughs> you better make that call. It's definitely uh, picked up, which is good, you know. No, and, and along those those lines, when you did reopen in May, um, were and even now, uh, as you're you know getting into two months reopened, are you seeing a lot of accelerated uh, periodontal or other dental issues that you hadn't seen commonly before from sort of either people neglecting or not being able to get to their visits or just you know shut in at COVID, not doing daily things like brushing? No, I, I think people were good in you know because they knew that you couldn't tell when we were going to be back. A lot of people were sort of stepped up their home care regimen. Mm -hmm. So I, I think a lot of people, you know, did the right thing for themselves. The problem that Harris was talking about, if you have decay, well, I've seen things that would have been treated with just, you know, a small procedure, a filling, a crown, that now need a root canal or an extraction. And uh, that was because of the delay. But, you know, some people... When you're older, you get a lot of dry mouth problems, and, and people with dry mouth develop decay really very rapidly. So it, it's, it's been a bit of an issue, but there's nothing specific to COVID that is linked to dental care. There, there isn't some sequela that I'm supposed to be looking for. Not yet, but, uh, you know, they keep finding things. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's like the one organ system that's been spared so far is maybe, maybe the gums, maybe the ginger, but everything else is getting nailed by this one. So I think a lot of helpful advice that, you know, we want to make sure that our dental care and our physical care and our mental care is being addressed. Your dentists are open. It's okay to call their office and say, hey, what have you done to create a safety net for us? I'm sure they're happy to answer that question. Go there with a feeling of security. Get your hygiene done. Don't let the K get worse. And visit your, you know, your friendly family dentist and, uh, and make sure your dental care matches your physical care as well. So thanks so much, Dr. Robert Solomon, for coming on tonight. Uh, we appreciate all of your efforts. And I know you've sent me pictures in your full PPE, and it's not a pretty sight. I don't envy you. <laughs> Probably similar to Dr. Valentino. People say I look better than ever. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us, Bob. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for having me. Bye now. We're now going to start our third segment of our uh, broadcast tonight, uh, which is the uh, basically the Q&A from things that we receive in our mailbox. Thank you again for sending all of your questions to between2twodocs at gmail.com. We continue to read all of them, and we try to get to as many as we can from week to week. Uh, the first question that came up, and there seems to be a theme here, and there were many questions about this, is related to school. Uh, the question specifically this week is, you know, let's say kids are going back to school. Are these kids going to be major vectors for disease in the fall? So again, Dr. DeValentino and I don't have a crystal ball. I wish we did. I think the school districts are still very much in, 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 in the gray zone here as to whether they're going to have full in class, full out of class, or some hybrid in between. And again, that's going to get a little more clear as we get closer to the school year. And Dr. Valentino and I do plan to have a special episode and talk about that specifically as we get closer to the end of August. But let's talk about kids and vectors. So let's say the kids all go back. Let's say every district opens, every kid goes back. Great. Good for socialization. Good for getting the kids back. And kids, as we know, generally do very well with COVID-19. However, children are vectors like anybody can be a vector. They can carry the disease like anybody can carry the disease. While they may not show signs of the disease, they can be completely asymptomatic and can carry high viral loads of this and they can spread the fun to other children to bring home or to their teachers who we're really worried about. Kid to kid may not be that exciting. Kid to kid to adult is pretty exciting. So I do see some element of mask wearing, a lot easier in your sixth grade to 12th graders and your collegiates, a lot tougher in your kindergartners up to fifth grade. So it's gonna be a bit of a challenge. While kids may not manifest disease at all in most of the schools across the country, and I think it will be very rare to see a child come down with illness, the concern for viral carriage and viral spread is real. Masks will cut down on that. Sanitation stations will cut down on that. Frequent hand washing will cut down on that. Outdoor activities, getting rid of general assembly, uh, school-wide assemblies and cafeterias, taking the gym class outside, minimizing travel in the hallways, all of this is going to be discussed at each and every one of your districts, whether it's private, parochial, charter, or public. Uh, a lot of decisions are gonna be made, hopefully with some CDC guidance over the next month or two. But yes, children are vectors, and while children may not come down with horrible disease, they definitely can spread the disease unknowingly or unwittingly. More to come. And uh, that, that uh, takes us to another question, which uh, I think is you know on everyone's minds, uh, and we both uh, talked and written about this. Uh, PPE, masks, and now the question of, you know, shields uh, or, or some type of face and eye protection aside from just the mask. Which one is best? Uh, what type of mask is best? 
Uh, and again, I, I'm going to focus on the things that uh, general population should be using. The public, not I'm not talking about things that we're using in an ICU or an ER, um, or even that you heard, uh, you know, Dr. Solomon talk about uh, how how dentists and hygienists are uh, are protecting uh, themselves and others from transmission. So, this is the out and about daily person. I think. Um, a cloth mask versus a surgical mask, they're all quite similar in, in the way they're designed to protect against droplet uh, expulsion into the environment. Um, ideally, they're protecting you from touching your face, although we all know we have something on our face, we do want to touch and shift. But um, the idea is, is out there and, and it's well established that you can uh, certainly get droplet particles into your eye and you can get COVID infection uh, as that through that route, the ocular route, as we call it. So um, what do we do to protect against that? If you're going to be in a, in a tight environment with a lot of people and uh, especially, you know, if you're at particular risk, I, I think, you know, does it make sense to think about wearing some type of eye protection? Sure. And, and, you know, we're not talking about um, you wearing a, a fume hood or things like, uh, you know, the, the giant suit that, that, that folks uh, you might see um, in, uh, in pandemic responses or, you know, Ebola responses, things like that. We're talking about face shields, masks, um, protective goggles that you might buy at a, uh, at a Home Depot or a Lowe's. Uh, these are the things that you might wear over glasses or um, as a, an extra barrier of protection if you're in those environments. Do you need it when you're in your car driving? No. Um, do you need it when you're in your own home with yourself? No. Um, maybe if you're going out to the doctor's office or the dentist or things like that and you're going to be around other people and you're at higher risk, it's a consideration. Um, when we talk about the, uh, the, the other, uh, the news topic I, I mentioned earlier in the show, aerosolization, Remember that um, a, a mask device uh, over your face and a, a shield, especially the ones that look like a welder's mask, I mean, those things don't protect you from aerosolization. So we're not really focusing on, on how do I get away from the aerosolization? Because I, again, I believe that that's not going to be the major route of transmission. That's going to be a, a, a smaller component. Um, but nonetheless, it's something to consider. Uh, please be open-minded you know, to masks in public. That you're protecting other people, as we both said and written. Uh, it's it's not a, uh, a a tear off of your liberties or your independence. It's just simple um, protections. Think of it like you know, no uh, shirt, no shoes, no service. Same idea. Fair enough. Uh, the the next question that came up uh, was from one of our New Jersey uh, listeners. Uh, kudos to Bon Jovi. Uh, their question was, there's been something, it, it was mentioned that the governor may resort to global testing. Uh, I'm not sure the details were hammered out, whether this is something that everybody is subject to, certain workplaces, essential workers, kids, adults, and how often, but does it make sense and would it work? So in a perfect world, we would have a non-invasive way to test everybody daily across the globe not realistic. We're having a hard enough time getting testing supplies to our hot zones right now in the Southwest in Florida and Texas. And where we are right in Pennsylvania, we've had some issues with ability to get patients tested when they need to be tested. So let's say the world is perfect. We have enough testing equipment. We have a rapid test that maybe uses saliva, non-invasive, not a nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swab, or maybe the anterior nares, the front of the nose. And let's say it was 100% accurate no false negatives, and let's say we can do it daily. That would be perfect. That's how you shut down the disease. You test everybody. If they're negative, they go over here. If they're positive, they go over here and quarantine for 14 days, 
and the disease peters out. The reality is that's not going to happen. We don't have the supplies. It's invasive. And there's still a decent degree of false negative testing, upwards of 30%. We're still seeing that number in the literature, meaning out of every 10 tests that come back negative, three of those that people actually have viral load. So the testing is far from perfect. Uh, to have global testing would end this until we get the vaccine or, or treatment that's effective. Uh, it's just not realistic. It's not going to happen in New Jersey. It's not going to happen in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Florida, Arizona, or Sweden. So while perfect, not going to happen. Until then, we have to do all the things that we've been doing, washing the hands, masking up, and social distancing. Yeah, great points. And, um, you know, another hot topic has been um, blood type and COVID severity. So um, I, I wrote, wrote about this uh, a few weeks ago as there's been a lot of uh, discussion in the media and in some studies. So again, early on, uh, I want to say back in uh, perhaps March or April, there was an observational study that, that came out. And observational just means you, you know, you're not doing an intervention. You're just looking at a set of patient data and you're, you're gleaning information from it. It doesn't mean there's a cause and effect relationship. It just means there may be an association. Um, and they found that if you are um, type A, uh, a blood type A, you tend to be at a higher risk of more severe um, disease if you acquire COVID than perhaps O. So take that forward. We have uh, two other um, studies that have been done looking at a number of different factors uh, on, on large-scale patient population data. And again, this association was raised uh, where type A is approximately a two-fold increase of severity over a type O. Um, you know, it, it's important to understand a few things. One, what do we do with this information? Well, you can't change your blood type. You're born with it, you get it from your parents, you can't change it, it's with you. There's no um, necessary um, cause for alarm because you're a type A. Hey, I'm a type A, but I'm still working with these patients and I haven't thought twice about it. Second, um, I brought this up the other day on rounds in the ICU and, and just out of curiosity, you know, we had five or six um, fairly sick ICU patients and we took a look at their blood types. Again, random sample, five, six patients. Um, wouldn't you know it, they were certainly not all type A. In fact, I think we had one or two O's definitely. Um, there may have been a B mixed in there too. So, you know, again, it's, it's not all things, all people, it's not exact. And even the people that looked at this study data say, you know, there are more important uh, factors that would suggest more severe disease such as age, um, cardiovascular comorbidities such as hypertension or coronary artery disease, um, these things that we've already talked about um, previously. So yes, it's out there as an association. It probably relates to the genetics of the immune system and how brisk our immune responses are. There's going to be more research coming out of this. Um, but again, please don't go calling your primary doctor's office demanding uh, blood type testing because it really doesn't make a difference in the end. And uh, that concludes our question segment. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's up for episode nine next week. Uh, we're hoping to have a local ophthalmologist on uh, to uh, circle back to that topic we, we just got into about ocular manifestations and, and what uh, eye doctors are doing to um, uh, care for patients in this COVID pandemic. Um, so stay tuned for that. I think it'll be some helpful information uh, we all definitely need to keep a, a check on our peepers and, uh, 
uh, it's not a time to uh, put off eye care either, uh, just like we, we heard from our dentist. Um, and stay tuned for future episodes too. Uh, we have a couple of ideas for guests. Uh, we we want to have uh, input from our, our listeners and our watchers. So if you have ideas, somebody you'd like to see on as a guest, please do send it our way, just like you submit questions to between two docs, TWO at gmail.com. Until then, be good to each other, be safe and be well. Good night.